Go ahead and open a Bible to Psalm 112 if you have one on a phone or handy. Uh, We'll be looking at that this morning. But I'd like to open by raising a question. Why be holy? Why should God's people, why should you seek to be holy? The Bible actually gives us several reasons. It's amazing that God very often tells us why he wants us to do what he wants us to do. He doesn't just say, do so because I said so. He gives reasons. And this fundamental call and command on each one of our lives and in our lives together as a body, be holy, he gives several reasons for in the scriptures. Let me point to five from the scriptures. Why be holy? First of all, because Yahweh is our God. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45, and Leviticus 20, verse 7, both say the same thing. Leviticus 27 says, Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am Yahweh your God. So we should be holy because Yahweh is our God. The second reason that he gives to us, because Yahweh is with us. Because Yahweh is with us. Deuteronomy 23, 14. Because Yahweh your God walks in the midst of your camp, Therefore, your camp must be holy. Be holy because God is with us. He is among us, and therefore we should be holy. A third reason the scriptures give us, because Yahweh has saved us. Leviticus 11.45, For I am Yahweh who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy. So, The Israelites look back to that event of salvation, the exodus. That's the gospel for them. That's the events of salvation for them. And so they look back to that event, God rescuing them from slavery in Egypt. And that's a motivator, a fuel for why they should go on living a holy life. Because God saved them. And of course, we look back to a greater event of redemption, a greater event of salvation, a greater rescue than the Israelites knew. We look back to the death and resurrection of our Savior, the death for our sins, the death that paid for our sins and set us free from the slavery of sin, the slavery of death. And so because God has done that for us, we ought to be holy. A fourth reason the Scriptures give us And flowing out of that reason, because Yahweh has separated us and owns us. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26. You shall be holy to me, for I, Yahweh, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. And of course, we we as Christians can echo that sentiment. We can read read those words from Leviticus 20 through the lens of 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul tells us that you have been bought with a price. You are no longer your own. You don't belong to yourself. Jesus owns you. He bought you and paid for you. And therefore, He has the right to do with your life what He will. He makes the rules. He has the right to dispose of our lives as He sees fit. And so we ought to be holy because... Jesus has bought us, purchased us out of all of the world, purchased us, purchased you. He's brought you out, separated you from the world around you, from the culture around you, from the life that you were living. He separated you and He owns you. He's bought you, He's paid for you by the death of His Son. And so He owns us and therefore we should be holy. The final reason that I'll give is the one that's repeated most often in the Scriptures. 
because Yahweh is holy. Be holy because Yahweh himself is holy. Leviticus 11.44, Leviticus 11.45, Leviticus 19.2, Leviticus 20.26, and in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. And so the, the Apostle Peter brings those words from Leviticus over to us, directing to us as the church, as Christians. And he says, 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We should be holy because our God is holy. And God has called us to be His reflection in this world. Psalm 112 fleshes this reality out in terms of righteousness. The righteous look like and act like God in certain ways. Psalm 112 illustrates this both by content and by form. This psalm is a mirror uh, reflection of Psalm 111. Like Psalm 111, the first word of this psalm is hallelujah, praise Yah. And like Psalm 111, this psalm is an alphabetic poem, an acrostic with the exact same structure and length of the previous psalm. If you didn't have a chance to listen to last week's message, I encourage you to go online and take a look at that, and you'll get some background about why that's important. I won't go into that and repeat that this morning. But this alphabetic poem is given to us as a mirror reflection of Psalm 111. And whereas Psalm 111 focused on praising Yahweh for His great works, Psalm 112 praises Yahweh for the way those who fear Yahweh reflect Him in this world. And so it's significant that we we start off with praise, even as the bulk of the psalm, the body of the psalm, talks about us and the way that we live in this world. Ultimately, that is a reason to praise God. He gets the credit for your righteousness. He gets the credit any time that you do what is right or good or holy. He gets the credit. He gets the praise. You don't. Sorry. No pats on your back. God gets all of the praise for our righteousness. So, if the alphabetic poem of Psalm 111 was intended to suggest a complete expression of praise to Yahweh for His great works from A to Z... So Psalm 112 suggests a complete expression of praise to Yahweh for His reflection in the person who fears Him. Let's see how this unfolds. Look at verses 1 to 3 in your Bible. Psalm 112, 1 to 3. We'll see the household of the one who fears Yahweh, the household of the one who fears the Lord. Praise Yah, that abbreviation for the divine name. Hallelujah. Blessed is the man who fears Yahweh, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. As we look at these verses in Psalm 112, we will see some verbatim, word-for-word, reflections, like in a mirror from Psalm 111. And we'll see that what was said of God, in Psalm 111, is said of the righteous person, the one who fears the Lord, in Psalm 112. We'll look at those as we go through. But he begins with praising Him, and then the alphabet begins after that. But we praise God 
for the reality of a life of righteousness. When we obey God, he gets the credit, he gets the praise. We don't. Blessed is the man who fears Yahweh. Congratulations to the man who fears Yahweh. Not because of anything that you've done, not because of anything that you've earned, but congratulations because God has done something to you and for you and in you and through you. So congratulations. God is at work in your life if righteousness is on display in your life. If you fear Yahweh, God gets credit for that. God gets the praise for that. The man to be congratulated here, the person to be congratulated is the one who fears Yahweh. That's picking up right off the end of verse uh, 10 of the previous psalm. At the end of Psalm 111, the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. And we talked about that some last week. What does it mean to fear the Lord? We'll talk more about that today just as a reminder. But here he fleshes out that out. In the second line of verse 1, the man who fears Yahweh greatly delights, greatly delights in God's commandments. Delighting in the commandments. How do you do that? Well, if you remember back a few weeks ago in Psalm 1, we saw how the person who delights in the instruction of Yahweh, the Torah of Yahweh, the law of Yahweh, and talks about it all the time, meditates on it day and night, is to be congratulated. In Psalm 2, we saw how all who find refuge in Yahweh are to be congratulated. Now here in Psalm 112, we see that the person who fears Yahweh is to be congratulated. The person who fears the Lord. And so we saw at the end of Psalm 111, the fear of the Lord essentially refers to how we recognize and embrace who God has revealed himself to be as holy and awesome. We recognize and embrace who God has revealed himself to be as holy and awesome. When we both recognize and embrace, love it, welcome it, who God is as he has revealed himself to be in the scriptures, as opposed to how we might prefer him to be, or how we might wish him to be, or how we might imagine him to be in our own minds, then the way we live our lives is radically changed. In fact, the fear of the Lord is often illustrated in the Bible by our rejecting evil, repenting of sin, and seeking to obey him. That's what the fear of the Lord looks like. It's not about our emotions. It's not about any kind of terror or dread. It's about running from sin and running to God. So here, the psalmist elaborates on the person who fears the Lord as the one who greatly delights in his commandments. What does it mean to delight? To delight in God's commandments. I can hardly do better than Martin Luther's comments on this point. He recognized that God's grace alone enables sinners to delight in God's commandments. And so he writes of God's grace like this, because it causes a man to love, it makes him willing toward the commandments. Therefore, the meaning is such a man is willing in God's commandments, eager and delightfully at work, not forced or unwilling or driven by punishment, but enticed by love. Enticed by love. I really like that. Why should we obey God's commands cheerfully with delight? Because God's love has enticed us to do so. He goes on to elaborate on the 
the man who fears the Lord here, his family, his offspring, his descendants will be mighty in the land. His descendants, his children, his offspring will be strong in the future. This is all about a concern for a legacy, developing a legacy. So parents, this is for you to think about most critically. Parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, how are you developing a legacy of faith in your children or in your grandchildren? How are you putting on display in your own lives, in your own choices, in the way that you treat other people, in the way that you act, in the decisions that you make that shows your children and your grandchildren and others who are watching that you fear Yahweh, that you fear the Lord? How are you showing them the way forward? Because folks, they won't figure it out on their own. You are there to provide them the picture. And so we should be very concerned about the legacy that we're building. How are we influencing our children? How are we influencing our grandchildren? How are we influencing just the people in our community who are watching us? You know, the the idea of offspring in the Bible is is sometimes bigger than just your children, the, the, the children that you bore and raised in your own home. Sometimes the idea of offspring is people that you shape. Thinking about it in a New Testament context, we could talk about people you're discipling, people you're mentoring, people you're speaking into. I hope you're doing that intentionally, but you need to recognize the reality, folks. If you're not doing it intentionally, you're doing it unintentionally. People are watching you. People watch people. You do, don't you? And people are being influenced, particularly by the way that you live out your faith or not. We need to be mindful of how our choices and our faith is expressed publicly, especially in our homes, but also out in the community. We should be concerned to produce a godly heritage, a legacy, that can go on for generations. Some of you, some of you know what that's like experientially. Some of you are in the midst of your parents were believers in Jesus. Your grandparents were believers in Jesus. And by God's grace, your children have become believers in Jesus. And you can speak of how wonderful that reality is. That's not my world. I don't know what that's like. But some of you do. And I hope that that will be the case for me in the future. But we have a responsibility in that, folks. I have a responsibility in that to intentionally work in the lives of my daughter and anybody else that I'm seeking to mentor or shape. That's all of you. So I'm very conscious about the choices that I make, the way that I speak, the way that I express my faith in public. Because I know that you're watching. And as we'll see at the end of our time, you should be watching. You should be. And we need to be mindful of this legacy reality. The man to be congratulated. The man who's blessed. His, his offspring are mighty. But again, it's not because of him. It's because of the reflection of God in his life. That he's reflecting God's character and God's ways out in the world. Verse 3 begins to continue, continues to describe his household, his family life. And he speaks of wealth and riches being in his house. Wealth and riches... Material riches 
are here connected with righteousness in the second line. His righteousness endures forever. Wealth and riches are in his house and his righteousness endures forever. The person to be congratulated, the blessed person, may have both wealth and riches and righteousness. But material wealth by itself is no indication of whether or not a person has been blessed by God. You know that, right? What would stand out about such a person who has great material wealth is, as Psalm 119.14 suggests, such a person delights in God's Word as much as in all riches. This kind of person may have a house full of riches, but this kind of person doesn't trust in those riches. Money is not where we find our security. There are a number of warnings, especially in the book of Proverbs, regarding the dangers of trusting in material wealth. Money is not to be trusted. To summarize those warnings simply, trusting in money, feeling secure because you have enough money in the bank account, will lead, will lead to misery now and destruction later. God freely gives wealth. He distributes resources as he sees fit. If he's given you a good job and a steady income, or if he's given you a huge inheritance, don't let the money become a snare. Consider the wealth to, don't consider the wealth to be the source of your security. Instead, recognize the giver. Acknowledge God as the true source of your secu- security. He gives and takes away. And in both experience, we can and should praise the name of the Lord. But it's this righteousness that the psalmist builds here and magnifies by saying his righteousness endures forever. He speaks here of an eternal righteousness. It's this person's righteousness which will endure forever. Not the wealth, not the riches. It's the righteous who will enjoy eternal life according to Jesus. But this righteousness is not something that we must achieve by our own moral effort. Rather, it is a result of God's grace. The gracious verdict of righteous. The gracious verdict of righteous that we must receive as a gift from God if we are to have a righteousness that endures forever. That's the only way it comes. As Paul says in Romans 5.21, As sin reigned in death... Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God's grace is decisive. God's grace supplies the verdict of righteous, and then God's grace provides the ongoing transformative power that enables those who have been declared righteous, those who have been justified by grace, to actually live righteously. This eternal righteousness is experienced in its fullness in resurrection. Daniel announces this in Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. 
Daniel, one of the few Old Testament writers who clearly teaches a future resurrection from the dead, indicates those who are truly wise in this life, those who spend their days turning many to righteousness, promoting righteous behavior, and also preaching the gospel that announces and offers a verdict of righteous from God's grace to sinful people, these are those who will awaken in resurrection to experience everlasting life, shining forever and ever as brightly as the stars shine now. Jesus says something similar in his explanation of the parable of the wheat and the weeds in Matthew 13, 43. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. The psalmist now turns to an image of shining light, but with a different meaning. Look at verses 4 to 6, Psalm 112, 4 to 6. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. So he begins by commenting on a light dawning in darkness for upright people. Here, the psalmist acknowledges that even for those who fear the Lord, there are going to be dark times. There will be times of suffering. There will be times of loss. There will be times of grief. There will be times of failure in the life of the follower of Jesus, in the life of the one who fears the Lord. There will be dark times. But in the midst of those dark times, in the midst of that darkness, we have the light. The light never goes out on us. Even though we may be in a season of darkness, we may be suffering in some way, we have the light that can enable us to keep moving forward in the darkness. There are no promises here. There are no promises ultimately in Scripture that we're going to be taken out of the darkness completely until Jesus returns. Instead, He promises to be with us, to be the light shining in the darkness. And of course, ultimately, we see both in the Old Testament and the New that Jesus, the Messiah, is that light. He is the one promised to shine in the midst of the darkness. The prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. This verse is quoted by Matthew in Matthew chapter 4, verse 16. And it's applied specifically to Jesus as he enters into and begins his ministry. So the light shining in the darkness, Matthew focuses attention on how Jesus came into this world. Matthew 4, 17, the next verse. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what does it mean for light to shine in the darkness? It's the preaching of repentance. It's the calling people to come into the kingdom of light and out of the kingdom of darkness. John's gospel, of course, opens by describing Jesus as both the divine word and also the divine light. This reflected Jesus' own teaching. He said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Then in John 12, 46, he said, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Jesus began shining the light in the world 
when he came preaching the gospel to the Jewish people in the first century, calling for repentance from sin and faith in him as the Son of God. His preaching was based on his mission, which culminated in his own submitting to the powers of darkness, experiencing the ultimate darkness of the wrath of God, deserved by our sins, dying on the cross and then rising from the dead, a true dawn of a new day, a new creation even, so that those who believe in him, those who follow him, are no longer overcome by darkness, are no longer dominated by darkness. Instead, as John says in 1 John 1, 7, we walk in the light as he is in the light, and we have fellowship with one another. And, in the, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The psalmist here affirms the reality that even God's people, even those who fear the Lord, even those who are to be congratulated, must face dark times. But the promise is that the light dispels the darkness and overcomes it. We can experience hope and even joy in the midst of opposition, suffering, loss, and sorrow because of our relationship with God through Jesus. But there's more here. In verse 4, he goes on to describe this person in a certain mysterious and wondrous way. God's grace, mercy, and righteousness are to be reflected in the righteous person. Verse 4b, the second line of verse 4, he is gracious, merciful, and righteous. That's the righteous person. That's the person who fears the Lord. That first bit of that, he is gracious and merciful, is taken right out of Psalm 111. The very core characteristics of God as he revealed his name on Mount Sinai to Moses in Exodus 34, 6. That is reflected in the person who fears the Lord. The grace of God, the mercy of God, and the righteousness of God are to be reflected in God's people. And what does that look like? Verse 5. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. The person to be congratulated here has wealth and riches in his house, according to verse 3. What's he supposed to do with that wealth? Share it. Provide for the needs of the people who don't have wealth and riches in their house. But this person also conducts his affairs with justice. Justice is a hot topic for discussion right now, but it's much more than a topic for discussion. It's a requirement of our lives. It's a demand from our God. Micah 6.8 says it quite memorably. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does Yahweh require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Yahweh is a God of justice, and he demands that his people be people who conduct our affairs with justice. What does this mean? Every cultural and societal issue that develops has something to do with justice, but justice on the small scale. We live in a nation, a republic, that claims to provide justice for all, and that would be ideal, right? Justice for all. This is the biblical call. God is a God of justice for all. And God is also a God who moves, especially toward the marginalized, the vulnerable, the oppressed. God's special attention towards the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner, 
or stranger or outsider, if you like, is highlighted several times in the Bible. The reason for these three subsets being singled out for God's attention seems to be what they all have in common. They all lack natural support. Widows have lost their husbands. Orphans have lost their parents, or at least one of them. Foreigners have lost their country or are away from their homeland and family of origin in some way. How can followers of Jesus conduct our affairs with justice in this nation? I don't think there's a simple overnight solution, but can we all agree that the injustice in our nation and the injustice in our communities goes deeper than race-related marginalization and violence? Justice in a fallen world where we live, will always be incomplete and truly impossible. But, don't misunderstand me, this psalm, among other places in Scripture, is pushing us, pushing us, pushing you, pushing me, to do what we can to pursue justice in our own relationships and in our own communities. What we can and must do in this moment is grieve injustice when we see it, repent from injustice when we participate in it, and seek to provide relief to victims of injustice in whatever ways we can. And finally, trust Jesus to bring true justice when He returns. He is the only one who can and will set all things right. And that's really what justice is about, setting all things right. And he will. In the meantime, we preach Christ and him crucified, the victim of the greatest injustice in all of history, who in that greatest injustice satisfied the eternal justice of God against all who would trust him. The first step toward authentic justice is to receive forgiveness for our sins on the basis of his sacrifice. Without that, I don't hope for much improvement in our cultural landscape. Now, the psalmist moves on in verse 6 to use an image, a metaphor. The righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. Uh, This is a description of a stable memorial. A more literal translation of verse 6 would go like this. For he will never be knocked over. The righteous person will be as a memorial forever. The psalmist is metaphorically describing the righteous person as a stable memorial, a statue that cannot be knocked over by the weather, by time, or by angry protesters. What makes the righteous person stable? How does he stand the test of time? And what does the memorial remind people of? It's the light of verse 4. God's grace preserving the righteous through all manner of chaos and uncertainty in this world. It's the character of God reflected in the righteous person, extending grace to the undeserving and mercy and compassion to the downtrodden. As we all know, it's quite easy to forget the good when life seems so bad. But God has promised that our good deeds will follow us even into eternity, Revelation 14, 13. 
Jesus indicates that on Judgment Day, He will commend His followers for good deeds we don't even remember doing. Matthew 25, 34-40. The memorial the psalmist speaks of here may not have so much to do with other people remembering our righteousness, but instead, He promises that God will remember our righteousness. The prophet Malachi speaks of this as well. Malachi 3.16 says, Then those who feared Yahweh spoke with one another. Yahweh paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared Yahweh and esteemed his name. If you ever feel unmotivated to do the right thing because you fear no one will remember this, no one will care, it won't make a difference, let this word encourage and strengthen you. The Lord sees, the Lord knows, the Lord will remember forever. Paul also says in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight, and in light of the resurrection of Jesus and the promise of resurrection for all of us, all believers, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Jesus told his disciples not to get so excited that they could cast demons out of people, but instead rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Brian Chapel expresses the truth well here. My name is written in heaven, and nothing done here will erase it there. That's a good, good encouragement for us. Now let's look at verses 7 to 10. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in Yahweh. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. So here in these verses, we see the future of the one who fears Yahweh, the future of the one who fears Yahweh. That's the encouragement of verses 7 and 8, folks. Fear the Lord, not the future. Fear the Lord, not the future. The psalmist again acknowledges that bad news will come to God's people. There will be bad news for you. You will experience perhaps one of the following, if not all of them, a diagnosis that will destroy your health. You will experience the loss of a spouse, the loss of a child, the loss of a parent. You will experience broken relationships due to sin and failure. You will perhaps lose your financial stability. You may lose your work. You may lose your sense of accomplishment in this world. Bad news comes to the righteous. The encouragement here is that we have no need to fear it. Expect it. The Scriptures are not callous. The Scriptures are so honest about this. It's so clear. In the New Testament, in the Old Testament, from Genesis to Revelation, everywhere in between, God's people will experience hardship and difficulty. Dark times. Suffering, loss, pain, sin. The Scriptures are clear on this point. What they don't do is sugarcoat it. 
for the very reason that we might stand up under it, that we might continue walking forward in the face of it. No matter what we lose, no matter what is threatened, we can walk forward by faith. Why is he not afraid of bad news? Why is it that you can be not afraid of the bad news that might come? Why can you be fearless in the face of bad news? His heart is firm, strong, sturdy. Why? Because he trusts in the Lord. His faith is strengthened. And that's the goal here, that we would have our faith strengthened in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our suffering. That is the God-designed outcome of our suffering. The strengthening, the purification of our faith. Right? We learned that in James. You could turn to 1 Peter and see the imagery of the fire-purifying metal. Our faith is impure. Do you own it? Do you recognize that your faith is not where it should be? It's not where it could be? It's not where it ought to be? I do. When we own that, and we admit that, and we stop puffing out our chests, God works greatly when we humble ourselves, Right? And so the encouragement here is that we don't need to fear whatever may come, no matter what comes, no matter what form the bad news takes. God's people, those who fear the Lord, can endure it without fear, moving forward in faith. Now I get it. I'm in this world just as much as the rest of you, and the psalmist is too. The people in the scriptures, the Human beings who penned these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They lived in the same world you do. And for many of them, it was a world worse than what you live in. They are very realistic about the reality that our faith is wobbly. It shakes. It's got holes in it. It's not where it ought to be. And so we shouldn't be ashamed to admit that. The goal is to keep trusting. As incomplete as it is, As hard as it is, we cry out with the man who called out to Jesus on behalf of his sick boy, I believe, help my unbelief. There's always going to be a mixture in your life. Just be aware of that so it doesn't surprise you when it comes. Be aware of that for the sake of your neighbor. Be aware of that in the life of your spouse. Be aware of that in the life of your children. Their faith will waver at times. Why are you there, husband? Why are you there, wife? Why are you there, father? Why are you there, mother? To strengthen that faith. To encourage that faith. To build it up in the people around you. It is the faith, faith in Jesus specifically, that will enable us to keep moving forward and to stand firm no matter what we lose no matter what gets knocked over, and no matter how out of balance we feel in this world. But he goes on to describe again what kind of a person are we talking about? What does this person look like in the midst of difficulty even? Verse 8, his heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. Again, the steadiness, the stability, the, the, the sturdiness of the heart is built all on faith. There's a guaranteed triumph coming in the future. And so we look forward to that. 
Verse 9 then goes on to describe this person's actions toward other people. Verse 9 describes him generously sharing what God has given to you. We've already talked a little bit about this. The psalmist kind of returns to this reality about the person who fears the Lord, the person who is to be congratulated, the person in a right relationship with God is to be a person who shares what he has. And why is that? Because he's mirroring God's generosity, mirroring God's character. If you just look at verse 9 by itself, take it out of context, you'd think it was talking about God. It's actually talking about the righteous person, the person who fears the Lord. Generously share what God has given to you. What's interesting about verse 9 is that the Apostle Paul quotes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, you'll probably remember, is all about this financial contribution that Paul is traveling around to Gentile churches collecting. He's calling for Gentile believers to give their money so that he can take their money and travel to Jerusalem, where Jewish Christians are suffering in a famine. They need resources. They need money to buy food and to survive. And Paul is specifically calling on Gentile Christians to share what they have with these Jewish Christians. That's intended to be a picture for all of us to see the wonder of the gospel and how it achieves unity among God's people. Jew and Gentile are to be supporting one another. Jew and Gentile are are to be sacrificing themselves for the benefit of others, for the benefit of these other people, even people that they don't seem to get along with really well. It was a very important moment in the early church. Paul felt the weight of this. He talked of it often. You see it in the book of Acts and you see it in several of his letters. This collection was hugely important for the mission of the church and for the growth of the church in those early days. Paul sees fit to quote this verse. And what happens is when we read it in 2 Corinthians, we read just him quoting verse 9, and we think he's talking about God. Let me give you the context there. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. He's motivating these Gentile believers by quoting Old Testament Scripture to them. He's motivating them with the Scriptures. Why should you give away your money to help these poor, suffering Jewish Christians in Jerusalem? Why should you help them? Here's why. 2 Corinthians 9, 8, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Note the repetition of the word all and the word every. Same word in Greek. All. You see... Don't think of God as a miser with His grace. Don't view your own relationship to Him as though, well, God's given me a little bit of grace. God doesn't divvy out His grace in these little bitty sprinkles. God gives grace abundantly. He pours it out like opening up a fire hydrant in your face. He gives it abundantly. He's not stingy. Don't view Him that way. You need to recognize, Christian, that He has given you all grace. He's not holding anything back from you. Your failures, your sins, your struggles do not put God's hand behind His back. He gives grace abundantly. And here, Paul wants to motivate them to do the right thing. He wants to motivate them to empty their pocketbooks. He wants to motivate them to give away their money. 
And he reminds them of God's grace. And he reminds it in such a superlative way. God is able to make all grace abound to you. And what's the result of that? When God pours out his grace in your life, what's the result? Having all sufficiency in all things at all times. That means that you have enough. You have enough all the time. Every situation, no matter what, you have enough. God's grace gives you all sufficiency, not just a little bit, all of it, all sufficiency. Not just sometimes, not just in certain circumstances, not just when you're doing the right thing. Not when, just when you're praying, you're, you're praying really fervently. Not just when you're faithfully doing what you think you ought to be doing or what the scriptures tell you to do. God gives grace to the undeserving. That's the definition of grace. You can't make Him give you more. And what you do doesn't make Him give you more or make Him give you less. God's grace is always, always, always flowing to the believer in Jesus. And the result of that is that you may abound in every good work. It's all about giving out. God never gives a gift just for you. He gives a gift to you for others. Always. All of God's grace is given to you, not just for your benefit, but so that it would be spread. God encourages re-gifting, folks. It's not a bad thing. (laughs) When He gives you a gift, He intends for you to give it away, to express it for the benefit of other people. So He says that, and then He quotes this verse from Psalm 112, verse 9. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. That's the righteous person. The righteous person is like this. So God's grace comes into your life, fills you up, provides you with resources. And the goal is then, what do you do with that? Well, you distribute it freely. You give to the people who need it. You give to the poor. And your righteousness endures forever. Your righteousness endures forever. He's already said that in the psalm and now he's repeating it. It must be important. It's the same righteousness. What does righteousness look like on the ground? In this situation, in the situation Paul was driving for, it looks like giving your stuff away. And generosity is an expression of your righteousness in the community. And so then he goes on, 2 Corinthians 9, 10, and 11. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Again, it goes back to giving credit to God. He gets all the thanks. When you give your money away and somebody says, oh, thank you for being so generous, respond appropriately. I am simply passing on what God has given to me. Give God praise openly. How will it be that the Gentiles, how will it be that the pagans, how will it be the people, the non-believers out in our world, how will it be that they will see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven? How will that be? Only if you and I rightly talk about our good deeds in public. When we do something good, We have to draw the dotted line for them that it is not my strength. It is not my resources. It is God alone who has provided this and who has done this through me. I am a conduit of God's grace. I am a vessel, nothing more. 
It is very important that we turn the attention of people who want to praise us and who want to thank us to God. He gets the credit. He gets the glory. Sometimes that's awkward. Okay, that's all I'm going to say about that. It is awkward. Deal with it and do it. And I'm saying that to me just as well. Finally, verse 9, he talks about this future exaltation. His, his horn will be exalted in honor. The horn is a symbol of power in the Old Testament and in the ancient world more generally. The word translated exalted literally means to, to rise, to rise. And the word translated honor more normally refers to glory, glory. So we could translate the last phrase of verse 9 as his horn will rise in glory. In connection with his righteousness enduring forever, we could certainly see this as a fitting backdrop to what the Apostle Paul was speaking of in 1 Corinthians 15 in connection with the resurrection of God's people. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 and 43. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. The promise here from the psalmist is that on judgment day, we will rise in glory and our power will be exalted in resurrected, transformed glory. That seems to be the idea at play here. Verse 10 then continues the thought about judgment day, talking about the wicked. So he spent the whole psalm so far talking about the the man who fears the Lord, and he brings in the contrast at the end in verse 10. What about the wicked? Well, he's already said that the righteous sees, that's verse 8, until he looks on his adversaries, the idea of kind of staring down his enemies, not intimidated by them and overcoming them in triumph. And now the same word, what does the wicked man see? Well, the wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. The wicked see the righteousness of the righteous and they will see the good outcome of the righteous on judgment day, but it just angers them. It doesn't inspire them to change. The adage attributed to Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary, is false. The gospel is a message. It's got words. And you express it in words. And it is words that God uses to save sinners. The gospel must be communicated in words. The idea that unbelievers will come to Jesus because of the life they see you living is false. It's not enough for them to see your righteousness, as I mentioned earlier. They need to be told that it comes from Jesus as a gift. Their natural response to observing genuine righteousness is to be jealous and enraged. And they will feel that way for all eternity. Or, alternatively, they will praise you as a good person. And that will be the extent of it. Now, that's not to say that People seeing our good deeds is not a part of the process. Might be some attractive power there. But do not think that either yourself or anybody in the world can be saved from their slavery to sin without the gospel message. It is the gospel that is the power of God for salvation. Your obedience to God, your righteousness on display is not the gospel. 
Your testimony about what God's done in your life is not the gospel. The gospel is a message about what God has done in Christ to reconcile the world to Himself. It's about what Jesus did historically 2,000 years ago. It's those events that must be announced, proclaimed, preached, communicated in words. Our deeds and our pictorial demonstrations and descriptions can come alongside and support the message in words, but the word must be communicated. It must be. Or else this will be the result for those who don't believe. You probably remember Jesus' discussion of hell and the times that he described hell as being a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Gnashing of teeth is typically an expression of anger and jealousy. Grinding teeth when you see something out there that you hate. And the wicked, the unrepentant, those who don't trust in Jesus will experience an eternity of hatred against God and God's people forever. Those who end up in hell will not suddenly stop sinning in hell. They will continue sinning forever and ever and ever and ever. They will hate God, hate Jesus, and hate all of God's people forever. Now is the opportunity for them to turn. Now is the time when they can be rescued from such a fate. But they must be turned. And only God has the power to turn a sinner from the wickedness of his ways. And he does so through the gospel. Let me close talked about this psalm as a reflection of Psalm 111, but we're really talking about us being a reflection of God. This takes us back to the image of God idea that God created humanity as an image. What does that mean? Well, partially that means that God God created humanity to reflect Him. A mirror is a good metaphor for what it means to be created in the image of God. There's more to it than that, but that's one aspect of it. The fall, when humanity rebelled against God... The image of God was shattered like a broken mirror. Now, if you've got broken mirrors at home or if you've seen broken glass, you know that it still casts a reflection, right? But it's distorted. It's broken. And that's what we are by nature. That's what every human being on the face of the planet is. Truly created in the image and likeness of God, but the image is distorted and broken. It needs to be remade. It needs to be changed. It needs to be fixed. Spurgeon perhaps said it best, we are at best but humble copies of the great original. Still, we are copies. And because we are so, we praise the Lord who hath created us anew in Christ Jesus. So ultimately, if we're going to talk about the reflection of God, the image of God in this world, we've got to talk about Jesus. Jesus is God's perfect mirror. Jesus is the only human who reflects God perfectly. Colossians 1.15, 2 Corinthians 4.4. It's Jesus who is the image of God par excellence. The image of God who is unbroken by the fall. Jesus, who is unshattered, unblemished, undefiled, undistorted reflection of God. You want to see what God looks like? You look at Jesus. Hebrews 1.3 uses a different metaphor to communicate the same idea. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. That's the image of a stamp. 
So that Jesus is like the, the stamp. You put a, it's the outline that's on the stamp. You put it in wax and you put it on something else and you can see the exact representation of what you had in the original. That's what Jesus did. He brought that into the world so that we could look at a human being and say that's what God looks like. Jesus is the key to our being holy as God is holy, to go back to our introduction. How can it be that we broken images can be holy as God is holy? Paul says Jesus is our holiness. 1 Corinthians 1.30, Jesus became for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification, holiness and redemption. He is those things. And so we cannot be holy without Jesus. We cannot reflect God's character without Jesus. It's impossible. And it was never meant to be so. We only reflect God perfectly by being connected to the one who reflects God perfectly, who is Jesus. And so it is that our destiny is to be Jesus's mirror. Ultimately, we are human beings. God created us to be human beings. We are not created to be God, but we are created to reflect God. And so we need to be reflecting Jesus. So how do we do that? Well, ultimately, this is our destiny. Using the language of Romans 8.29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Predestination is not something that we ought to be fighting about or debating about. There's a place for discussing the meaning and significance of that. But the the teaching of predestination in the scriptures is all about God has marked out a destiny for his people. That's all it means. There is a certain destiny for God's people. He marked it out ahead of time. That's all that that language means. God marked out a certain destiny for you. And that destiny is described here as to be conformed to the image of of God's Son. To be conformed to the image of Jesus. That is your destiny. That's the finish line. You're going to make it. Guaranteed. God will get you there. It's His work that does it. And so your destiny is certain. Guaranteed. That you will be conformed to the image of His Son. But it's not for your sake. Notice there's an order that here. What's the point? Why does it matter? Who cares? In order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Think about it. If we all, if all of God's people throughout all of history, the billions of us that there will be in the resurrection, if we all look like Jesus, guess who gets the glory? Jesus! We're meant to look like him so that we can reflect him so that he gets all the glory. Everybody will be looking at him. When they look at me, they'll be looking at him. That's the point. That's why it's this way. He deserves all the glory. You don't. I don't. We don't together. He gets it all. And he gets it all by us being remade. The mirror will be fixed. It will be repaired. The reflection will be perfect. 1 John 3, 2 says it this way, Beloved, we are God's children now. Truly, now you are a child of God if you're a believer in Jesus. But what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, when Jesus appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Folks, that doesn't happen the day you die. That happens on resurrection day. Your soul will go to heaven and be with Jesus and commune with Him and your soul will see Jesus. But this is talking about eyeballs seeing Jesus. Physical sight 
has got to be part of the picture. And that is when 1 John 3, 2 becomes a reality. We will be radically transformed, conformed into the image of Jesus. We will be his perfect mirror and he will get all the glory. In the meantime, and I'll wrap up really quickly, the pathway involves three steps. Conversion, transformation, and imitation. Conversion is all about becoming a believer in Jesus. Putting on the new self is the way Paul puts it in Ephesians 4. Created after the likeness of God. You have to be remade. No one comes into this world reflecting God the way we ought to. We have to be changed. And that's what conversion is all about. It's the new creation must happen to you. You must be created anew in true righteousness and holiness. But along the way, there's a process that happens. After that moment, the process begins, and it's called transformation. 2 Corinthians 3.18 We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. From this, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Folks, this is happening to you whether you feel it or not, whether you know it or not. If you are a believer in Jesus, if you have put on the new self, if you've been created anew, you are being transformed. It's happening to you. You don't cause that. You don't drive the ship. It is being done to you. That's the promise of 2 Corinthians 3.18. It's a fact and an ongoing progressive fact. The Spirit of God is at work in your life. He's not sitting in your heart in the lazy boy of your mind with his feet kicked up, doing nothing, waiting for you to get your act together. He is at work many times and maybe even for seasons of your life. You may not feel it. You may not see much of it in your own experience. But it's happening. This is the most mysterious aspect of our salvation, how the Spirit is at work in our lives every moment of every day. But He is. He is at work to transform us. And this is our ongoing glorification. Glorification is not just a future thing. That's what this text says. You are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. It's happening to you. It's happening to you. You may not feel it. You may not see the evidence all the time. But it's happening. And you will see the evidence at least occasionally. So if that's happening to us, if that's the Spirit's work, what's our responsibility in that? That's the last piece, imitation, imitation. I'll leave this for you to explore on your own since we're out of time. Uh, but we are called to imitate God. Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God. Specifically in certain of his character traits. If you look at Ephesians 5.1 and back up a verse at the end of Ephesians 4, it talks about being kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as, as God in Christ forgave you. So how are you supposed to imitate God? What does that mean? How you treat one another is a good diagnostic. Look there, see there, act there. How does God treat us? That's how we ought to be treating each other. And so we go there. God has given us this call to imitate each other. God has granted us flesh and blood examples in the church. We talked about earlier at the beginning of our time, near the beginning of our time, we should be setting an example for each other. We should be conscious that we are setting an example for us. Not just the leaders, even though there's plenty in the scriptures that say, imitate your leaders. Imitate your leaders. There's also, 
Imitate the brothers. Imitate those who are expressing their faith and enduring in the midst of these days. We are to be imitators of each other insofar as we are imitating our Savior. You want to know how Jesus lived? Read the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. There's a man you will see there. A human being. Acting as human beings do. How he treated people. Go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the ways that you've been at work in our lives, some so mysterious that we can hardly put language to it, but you've given us the scriptures to explain these things to us, to open up the mystery to some degree. Would you help us to understand what our role to play is, how we should be responding to your grace, what we need to be doing in these days, and how we treat each other and how we work in this world. We want to reflect you as well as possible and by your grace dependent on the power of the holy spirit in our lives we can we can reflect you to this world and to each other would you help us father would you continue to work in us by your spirit to make us the best reflections we can be in this world help us to be eager to repent from our sin help us to be eager to admit when we've got it wrong and when we failed help us to be eager to turn away from sinful patterns and sinful habits and help us to run to our Savior knowing that He's got His arms open to receive us, to welcome us, to hold us, and to move us to reflect His character and to to obey His Word. Give us grace in these days to do that well. In Jesus' name, Amen. As you get ready to go out,